Okay, I know that uh, one of the things I've always enjoyed and I learn from is uh, I have always enjoyed listening to the radio and sometimes I'll tune into KGNW and the Bible Answer Man, which is at 331 Hank Hanegraaff, and I ask myself, boy, how would I ask that question? Because there's people who call in and they ask all sorts of questions about the Bible, and I've always wanted and desired to uh, be able to articulate answers. Well, we couldn't invite Hank today, but we do have Dr. Lockwood, and we're very grateful to have him today. <laughs> so here we have a bunch of questions, and I, I thank the Lord because, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have so many questions, especially when James makes it a requirement in the small group that he's leading with high schoolers to have a question. So you'll find a lot of these questions are, are from them, the youth, and I'm very grateful because you'll hear the question. We'll start off with an easy one for you, okay? Just an easy one. Do you personally believe that people can lose their salvation? Uh, excellent question. I do not believe they can. If genuinely born again... I don't believe they can lose their salvation. There's a couple of passages that are very persuasive to me. Uh, Probably the most persuasive is uh, Romans 8. Uh, We remember uh, that great passage that says, What can separate us from the love of God? Can height or depth or principalities or powers or things present? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, But sometimes people will say, Well, but couldn't my sin separate me from the love of God? And that's when you need to go back earlier in that passage where there are four major questions that Paul asks. Um, I'll just read them real quick. And um, the rhetorical questions with the answer understood, and it seems to me that absolutely answers the question that nothing can separate us. Question number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God did the great thing of sending his son, can't he do the minor thing of keeping us in him? That's kind of the argument. Second question, who can bring a charge against God's chosen? Who can effectively complain, as apparently Satan tried to do with Job, that were unrighteous. And the answer is, whom God, it's God who justifies. Uh, so if God is the one that declares us righteous, how could a creature or ourselves or Satan bring a charge that would, in a sense, contradict what God has said? Uh, who condemns? Implied answer, nobody, because Christ who died is at the right hand. And then who can separate us from the love of God? And there he goes through and gives all of those reasons. Okay. Another question is, is it possible to be spirit-filled without the word of God? I'm thinking of people in countries such as China who have accepted Christ as their Savior but might not have access to the Bible. They're not able to saturate themselves in God's word. Is it possible to be spirit-filled without the Word of God? Well, if you understand spirit-filled as that fourth view, um, then, then, the, then your, your spirituality and being filled with the God is going to be a function of your knowledge of God. Is it possible, maybe the other way to an, ask the question, is it possible to begin to make spiritual progress even though you don't have the whole Word of God? And I would say, yes, it is. Uh, because the Spirit of God uh, works on what you know, and there's, there's some knowledge, 
And remember, it's not just knowledge. It's obedience. It's submission. It's, uh, it's taking the knowledge you know and living as, as much as you can in accordance with what you know. So there's a sense in which God will hold us more responsible because we have access to the entire Word of God than people who have less, but they are more faithful with what, with what they know. So I think, yes, they can begin the, the journey, but the ideal is let's get the Word of God into the hands of everyone, I guess. Okay, they get a little tougher now. Here's a, you're, not letting a me, you're not letting me question bottle, are you? Yeah. on uh, Ordo Saludis. When does the Spirit enter a believer? Just after salvation or before salvation, enabling the person to believe? Ah, oh, this is a question. Is that your question, Joe? No, this is from the youth. All yeah. these from the youth so okay. far. Uh, that's one of those mysteries that uh, I was going to intend to solve uh, when I got out of <laughs> seminary. And... Uh, um, it's one of those areas that I leave a little bit more intention. Uh, in terms of when the Spirit enters, uh, my rule of thumb would be the minute you put your faith in Christ, uh, a number of things happen to you. In fact, I think Lewis Berry Chafer in his theology said 32 things happen to you the minute you put your faith in Christ. Now, I hear that and I always think, well, why not 33 or 31? But, uh, but one of those is you're indwelt by the Spirit. And when we talk about the order, does and, and it's a good question. It's a, it's a deep theological question. Because if faith is the only thing that pleases God, as Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please God. And we can do nothing to please God ourselves. And Ephesians says, seems to imply that by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, seems to suggest that faith itself is a gift of God. So, but, but the irony is, it's a condition for our salvation. So Jesus says, whoever believes will be saved. But that's where I think the real mystery comes in. Because in John 6, you've got both of these truths side by side. Jesus says, whoever will, whoever will may come. Open invitation. But just a a few verses earlier, he says, no one comes to the Father, comes to me unless the Father draws him. That would be the work of the Spirit, bringing them to faith. And yet no one can be saved unless they have faith. Now, so... Either way you go, you run into trouble. If you say you need to have the Spirit's work first, then why do you have to have faith? And yet faith is important. If you say the Spirit doesn't come until we have faith, then you run into the trouble of saying, well, faith is something I I generate on my own. So the, the coward's way out, which is the one I take, is though there's a logical difference, they happen simultaneously. And the Spirit works uh, in your life to give you the motivation, the faith to believe. And when He works, you will believe. But, but it's real faith. It's a real choice that you're making. It's not, it's not, a, uh, it's, it's, it's not a facade. It's, it's a real choice. So the answer is, it happens at the same time. That's about the best as I can say.
question regarding tongues. Would the practice of speaking in tongues be considered a misinterpretation of the Bible? Let me repeat that to give you a minute to think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would the practice of speaking in tongues be considered a misinterpretation of the Bible? Um, in my view, there, there's an important distinction that we need to make. The, the practice of tongues in Scripture and the gift of tongues in Scripture uh, had a couple of characteristics. Um, it probably was a human language. We know that from Acts 1. Because they could understand the languages that the apostles were speaking in. And they weren't, it wasn't ecstatic speech. It was, human, it was human language, which is what the word tongue means. And even in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems to be talking about real human language. The second thing is it, was, it could be controlled. Remember, Paul says, when you practice tongues in the assembly, make sure you don't do it unless there's an interpreter. And if there is an interpreter, just two or three do it so that there isn't disorder. So it can be controlled. Um, the, uh, the, the third characteristic is it's a spiritual gift, which means it's not for personal edification. It's for the, the edification of the body. So the biblical gift of tongues is a real language, as far as I can tell. It can be controlled and is to be exercised like a spiritual gift. Now, that's true regardless of whether you think that gift, the tongues, gift of tongues has ceased or whether it's still around today. Um, there's many that hold, in fact, Dallas Seminary holds that the gift of tongues is, has ceased. Um, I'm more open to the possibility that the gift of tongues could be around today. I, I hold an open but suspicious view. Because uh, I'm not sure it's normative. Usually people who think it's around think it's normative. And I don't think it's normative. So if a church has a group of people and none of them have ever spoken in tongues, that doesn't bother me because the Spirit gives gifts as He wills. Okay. I've I got to say one other thing. There is a phenomenon going on which is prayer language. And many of the charismatic churches engage in prayer language. Now, here's my view, and it's going to sound like, sound like waffling. I don't think that's the gift of tongues. It's not necessarily a real language. It's done privately. It's often not controlled. Um, I am reluctant to say it's, it's wrong. I just don't know. I don't think the Bible speaks to a prayer language. So I'm not surprised that the Spirit could manifest himself in a lot of interesting ways. But I don't think it's the gift of tongues, because it doesn't meet the criteria. So I'm in kind of in this position where I don't think it's the gift of tongues, but I, I don't want to deny that it's a, uh, it's a real experience. It becomes problematic if a person says, well, unless you have this gift of prayer language like I have, you're not spiritual. Now we're into different, we're into a real problem, I think.
Okay. Another one is, uh, I want to be educated or aware of who follows the contemplative thinking of sanctification. Can you name some authors, speakers, Christian leaders, churches who are in this camp? Two of the main authors that come to mind from an evangelical standpoint would be Richard Foster, who's written a lot on the area of spiritual formation. I think he he taught at Regent uh, College up in Vancouver. I don't know if he's still there. So he's done a lot of writing on that area. Um, There's another influential writer is Henry Nguyen, I think is his name, Roman Catholic writer. But the contemplative view draws a lot from from the medieval uh, theologians, uh, St. Francis of Assisi and others from, a, from some of the Catholic traditions that are there. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm most tentative about the contemplative because there seems to be a wider range of views that, are, uh, that make me uncomfortable. I think a number of the things, the deep meditative prayer, the overwhelming love of Christ, there's aspects of this dark night of the soul that I I think uh, emphasize adversity that really is part of the Christian experience. But some of their writings are are very mystical and and, and very subjective and make me uncomfortable. So Foster, Nguyen are two that I can think of, and they're drawn from some of the medieval writers kind of the mystical writers but but read them with great caution is would be my would be my advice okay here's another one hebrews 6 6 it's regarding this particular passage hebrews 6 6 if god always forgives uh regarding someone who has fallen away uh is it impossible to renew them again to repentance? Very uh, much debated passage. In fact, that was the passage my mother struggled with uh, after she became a believer and feared that she could fall away and would never be restored again. Uh, there's two main views of this passage, and I take a third one, as you might not be surprised. One of the major views says... You can never lose your salvation, but this is talking about people who are professing believers. They've tasted, they've kind of participated, they've even joined the church, but they never are genuine believers. And if they fall away, they'll never be restored, because they were never, they were never believers. The other view is that they are genuine believers, but they fall away... And, and, and apostatizing, and that is such a terrible thing that they never have a second chance again. Those are the two major views. And both of them see this passage as dealing with your eternal destiny. Now, both of those views, in my opinion, have a problem. The view that says they're never believers, you've got language describing these people, tasting of the heavenly gift, and so on, that seem so strong that they really are believers. 
You know, even the idea of tasting, saying, well, they kind of sampled it, but never really took it. But remember, Hebrews describes Jesus as tasting death. Does that mean he kind of sampled it, but didn't really die? No, that's a pretty strong word. So, they've got problems. The problem is that those that say you could be saved and then lose it, and have to also say you can never be restored. But I don't know any group that says that. They always say, well, you could fall away and you've lost your salvation, but you could come back. So, if you really take that passage to mean you can never be restored, then that's, that's pretty harsh. I take a third view. I don't believe it's talking about eternal destiny at all. I think he's talking to believers who have, have received the word, but have not grown Remember, at the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews talks about the milk and the meat. And he says, you've been on the milk. And, you, and then in, cha- in, ver- in the first verses he says, and you've, we've taught you these things, but we must move on. And I think he's dealing with believers who haven't grown. And he says, there comes a point when all of our discipling, all of our teaching... If you don't respond, there's no more that we can do. So the question is, when it says, it is impossible to restore such a one, the question you have to ask is, impossible for whom? Is it impossible for God? Well, that seems pretty strong. And yet that's what the other groups really say. I would say it's impossible... For the, the, the normal processes of discipleship, there, there, there comes a point where a person can be so hard-hearted that the normal processes of a discipleship are not going to be effective in getting a person to come back to walking in fellowship. But is it, does it mean that they're saved? Does it mean that God couldn't do it? And that's where the next verse, which talks about the field, becomes very important. Because it talks about such a person is like a field that is like being cursed. doesn't say they are cursed, but it's like being cursed. They have thorns and weeds. And what's the remedy? Fire. Well, the other groups say, well, that's referring to hellfire. But I don't think so. It's, a, it's an agricultural metaphor. It's saying... A person who doesn't grow becomes entangled with the weeds of sin and of this culture. And there's really nothing the farmer can do. But God can burn the field. Now, why does he burn the field? To destroy the soil? No. To purge the soil. So I take it that this passage is not talking about eternal destiny. But it's talking about divine discipline. Now, it's a serious warning. If you come to a point where you've been play- you're a believer, but you've just been playing along, what this passage, I think, is saying is, look out. God will not let you go. And He could bring fire of adversity and testing and discipline in your life. In fact, He could even bring death. This is serious business. But I don't believe it has anything to do with our eternal destiny. Everything to do with divine discipline. And the church tries to do discipline. But there can be a point at which it becomes ineffective. But God still can work.
So that's the third alternative view that I hold. Okay, good. And uh, Joe will explain all of this in the next three or four months. That's right. Uh, what, okay, and I think this is what it is asking. The question reads, what is the evidence for non-persevering sanctification? I believe what it's asking is that uh, what would be the biblical support for those who would hold to a non-perseverance of the saints yes. uh, view? There's two kinds of evidence that they use. One are a series of passages that seem to suggest a person can fall away. And the Hebrew 6 probably is the fa- favorite passage. So that's why if you hold that your salvation is secure, you need to look at those passages. And Hebrews 6 is one. There's other passages like, um, like I think it's Galatians 4, um, where it describes the Galatians as fallen from grace. And I don't think it's talking about losing salvation. I think it's, I think it's talking about legalism. But anyway, there's a number of passages that seem to suggest that. And so you have to look, look at it. The other kind of evidence are warnings. Are the warnings that suggest that, that if you, if you uh, don't follow Christ, there is going to be severe consequences. And, um, and, and the commands to be holy and the warnings that, that, uh, that seem to be conditional. If you continue, you know, then you will in, enjoy uh, eternal life. Um, the way I've done it is I, I've looked at all of the passages, those to support the view and those that don't. And, and my view is that passages like Romans 8, like John 10... And other passages, to me, are so strong because they root salvation in the work of God that you can understand the others as, as warnings and in light of that, but those become kind of the controlling passages to me. Because I, I can't figure out any way to understand Romans 8 except that I don't care what you've done, nothing will separate you, including your own sin, from the love of Christ. So, that's kind of what you have to do. You have to look at all of the passages and kind of weigh them uh, as you sort it out. Okay. Uh, another one is, um, it, it, it reads this. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in non-believers to sustain them? So, I suppose it could be two aspects. One is the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit, or perhaps the other aspect of the question could be the omnipresence of God in, uh, yeah. in, in all, all that exists. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I tend to take the indwelling ministry as, as a very specific ministry for believers only. I also happen to think that it only happened since Pentecost, so that Old Testament saints did not have the indwelling ministry. And my basis is uh, the predictions that Jesus gave in John. Uh, John 7, he says, uh, you know, the, the passage where, where he says, I'm the living water, if anyone comes... Uh, He'll drink, and out of him will fall livings of living water, if anyone's thirsty. And John says, this he spoke concerning the Spirit, 
which was not yet. Now, we usually add the phrase, which was not yet given, because the Spirit was existed, obviously. But he, he says the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's something coming that was not true during Jesus' public ministry. He goes to the upper room discourse and he gives this wonderful promise. It's a good thing I go away, he says. Because if I didn't go away, then I couldn't send the Spirit, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, who will abide in you forever. I think that's the promise of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit and all of its manifestations. Now, it's also true that Christ abides in us. It's also true that the Father abides in us. Did you realize that we have the triune God dwelling within us? And if that's not confusing enough, we abide in Him. So there's this interesting relationship. But it is true that the Spirit worked with non-believers. Remember, uh, the best example I can think of is, is Balaam. I don't know anybody who thinks Balaam was a believer. But we're told the Spirit came upon him. And he gave these incredible prophecies. So the Spirit can use anybody. And the Spirit is omnipresent, as the question implied. And, and that means he's everywhere. But the ministry of indwelling, I think, is a distinct ministry which, in which the Spirit comes into us for our personal growth to protect us, to sustain us, and to direct us. Okay. Well, there are a few more, but does anybody have any questions that they'd like to just ask? I can bring the mic to them. Maybe you answered this before. This is, again, not contemplated. How did you decide to use illusions with your, in your ministry? I, I did magic tricks when I was in fifth grade, but lost interest. Uh, but Janie and I were in Dallas. I was attending seminary, and we were involved in our church. And we're involved in kind of a midweek service where the adults met, and then we took care, we, we, uh, took care of the kids. And it was about a three-hour stint of stuff. And we were really babysitters, I think, but it was the ministry. And my mother had brought down a case uh, that, of little tricks that I had done as a fifth grader one time on her visits. And I was running out of material with the kids, so I thought, well, I'll try some of these out. And they were very simple. I mean, you may have thought mine were simple. These were really simple. But uh, I started using some of those, and, and, I, and the kids just loved them. And I thought, hey, this has potential for ministry. So there was a wonderful magic store in Dallas, and the owner had been a performer, and then he had a store. And the thing about magic stores is when you buy something, you can't return it because you're buying the secret. So you can spend a lot of money on stuff you never use. But this guy was really helpful. He, he knew I was going to spend a lot of money anyway, I guess. So he would tell me, no, this won't, you know, you don't know, but you need to have this one. So he really guided me. So I'd put together these little magic shows. We'd have people over for dinner, and then I subjected them to a free magic show. No wonder they never came back. But eventually, I think one Christmas, I got an invitation from some friends to do a show at their, uh, at their house Christmas party. So I put together my best stuff and did the show and and a couple of days later I got a thank you note from them with a check for a hundred dollars and I thought there's something to this 
And that was back in the 70s. And, I mean, $100 still is a lot to me, but it was a lot back then. So. Been doing it ever since. Another question? Anybody? I hope we're not beating this subject to death, but just again on, on the question of losing your salvation. Uh, one thing that came up in our, our group is just this question about what, how does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit come into play with all of this? Yeah. yeah. How does it blasphemy against the Spirit? Uh, that's the passage in, in Matthew 12, and it occurs in a couple of other places where Jesus had cast a demon out, the Pharisees said, and the people were beginning to say, is this the son of David? And they said, no, he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And that's when Jesus says, I mean, he, re, he refutes it on a number of grounds. And he says, any sin against the son of man can be forgiven. But a sin against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven in this day or the age to come. I've met people who have been Afraid that they had committed the sin of the Holy Spirit and they were doomed forever. And I don't think that's what that passage is talking about. Here's the question you have to ask. There's lots of opinion. Here's mine. Here's the question you have to ask. Why is it that sins against the Son of Man could be forgiven, but sins against the Spirit couldn't? Now, one view is what I call the arbitrary view. God just decides, that sin is so bad, I'll just never forgive it. But, why doesn't he say that against the Son? So, let me ask you, what's the worst thing you could do against the Son of God? What's the worst thing? Anybody? Reject Him. Okay. To reject Him. Is there anything worse than that? Well, let me ask you this. What's the worst form of rejection? That could happen. I'm sorry? Betrayal is pretty bad. Anything worse than that? Well, unbelief is, uh, is kind of like rejection. Wouldn't you think nailing him to a cross would be pretty bad? I mean, wouldn't that be the worst form of rejection? Could you do anything worse to the Son of Man than not only reject him, but spit on him and beat him and nail him to a cross? Was that forgivable? Yeah. Because, in fact, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. So, how could the Father forgive that, but not blasphemy? I believe it has to do with the nature of forgiveness. What did the, what did the cross of Christ accomplish? You see, it was the means by which that the Son... Invo- was involved in, in in making forgiveness possible. In order for us to be forgiven, because that's the word he uses, is forgiveness, he had to pay the penalty. And so, nothing, including crucifixion, prevented that work from happening. In fact, ironically, this terrible act of Rejection, which led to the crucifixion of the Son of God, actually was the act which led to the payment of making forgiveness possible. What an irony. So, the Son's role in forgiveness is to die and pay the penalty for our sin. And those that crucified Him could be forgiven because 
Their unbelief didn't affect the fact that he accomplished the work and it was finished. Now, stay with me for a second. What is the Spirit's role in forgiveness? The Son's role is to pay the penalty by dying on the cross. That's been done. What's the Spirit's role in forgiveness? He convicts us. He applies the atonement of Christ to the individual heart. What happens if you resist the convicting work of the Spirit? If you blaspheme, if you say, I, that's not the Spirit, that's Satan. What happens to forgiveness? Well, eventually, if you do it long enough, the atonement is not applied to you and forgiveness becomes impossible. So, I believe the issue in that story is not that, you know, blasphemy is just, you know, it's a grade A sin and everything else is B, C, and D. And we don't, God doesn't forgive grade A sins. That seems very contrary to the nature of God's grace and nature of sin. I think it has to do with forgiveness. And anything against the Son of Man can be forgiven because nothing you can do against Christ interferes with His work on the cross. But when you reject the Spirit's convicting ministry which applies forgiveness to you and you reject it and you reject it whether it's through blasphemy or any number of things you won't be saved there's no forgiveness so that's that's my take on that one it's it doesn't have anything to do with losing salvation it has to do with uh, the impossibility of being saved and who is he talking to he was talking to the pharisees And there was no sense in their heart, oh, Lord, please forgive us. I think if they would have said that, he would have said, I forgive you. But that's a sign that they were not sensitive to the Spirit. So here's something to remember. If someone comes up to you and says, have I committed, I'm I'm afraid I've committed a sin against the Holy Spirit. I think you can tell them you haven't. Why? Because they're obviously sensitive to their spiritual well-being. That's a sign the Spirit's still working. If a person, what's concerning is if a person has no interest. Because they're not, you know, then the Spirit's not at work on their heart. And that is, that doesn't mean we abandon them. Because we don't know what the future may be. But, but that's, that's, that's my take. Probably more than you wanted to hear. Is it wrong, the question reads, is it wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit? Common question. Uh, I don't believe it's wrong to pray to the Spirit. Because He's God. And we can pray to the triune God. I think it is true that the general pattern in the New Testament is we pray to God the Father. Because what does Jesus say? When you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. Uh, The general pattern is that we pray in the name of Jesus. So we pray according to the will of Christ. And then the Spirit gives us uh, the ability and the power to pray. Remember what Jesus said about the Spirit. The Spirit comes not to bring glory to Himself. The Spirit will come to give glory to me. And to remind you of the things that I've said that you've forgotten and the things that I, I haven't told you yet. So the Spirit's role is not to exalt Himself. It's to exalt Jesus. 
So, I think the pattern is, pray to the Father in the name of Christ and relying on the power of the Spirit because He intercedes and He helps us to know what to pray. Is it wrong to pray to, the, to Jesus? No, I don't think so. He's a member of the Trinity. Is it wrong to pray with, to the Spirit? No, I don't think it's wrong. But it's not the pattern. I, I would be concerned if all you do is pray to Jesus, or all you do is pray to the Spirit. Maybe that's getting a little out of balance with the model, but I, I wouldn't call it sin. Okay. Anybody else have some more? Dying quiet. We only have a few more minutes. Have something you want to ask? Okay. Yeah. About praying to Jesus in the Spirit. How do you respond to those who, I guess, then they aren't believers, but they're praying to any, to Mary or the saints? Or maybe giving yeah, more credit to yeah. than I don't pray to Mary or the saints. But I, I want to say something, just so that, so that we're, we're fair uh, to Roman Catholics who do. Uh, but I, you know, I don't, but just to be fair. Um, there is some emphasis on Mary that I think is out of, out of balance. Uh, some call her a, the co-redemptrix, which is really elevating Mary to almost a partner in, in redemption, which is not true. Um, but one of the things that's going on in Roman Catholic theology is their view of the universal church. And we agree with that, or I agree that, there's a, that the universal church is made up not just of living believers, but of believers of all generations, living and dead, who have put their faith in Christ. So, we Protestants would agree with Roman Catholics on that regard. They just take it one step further. Just as you would feel comfortable coming to one of your pastors or leaders for spiritual advice who are living, they feel it's appropriate to address saints who are dead, because they're part of the church. It sounds like they're worshiping Mary, but most Catholics that I've read and talked to would say, no, that's not what we're doing. We're not worshiping, they're not God, but they are, there are, there are wonderful people who are close to God, and just as we would pray, or we wouldn't pray, just as we would talk to an elder or a pastor in our church who's living, it's legitimate to pray to saints and Mary who, who are dead. So, it's an ecclesiology, it's a church issue. It's your understanding of the church. Now, I think, I think it's a little misguided. Because I think, why not make your prayers effective? I mean, why don't you go directly to the Lord? And the other, the other thing that's going on with the Roman Catholic system is they, they still are a priesthood-oriented system. And yet, as a Protestant, I believe that all of us are priests, that we have direct access to God. So, I've never talked to my mother, who's with the Lord. I've never talked to my dad. I've never talked to Paul. I've never talked to Mary. Uh, when I pray, I, I talk 
to God through Jesus. I just think that's a better way to do it. But uh, there's some other things going on, and their, their view of the church is one of them. And in fairness to Roman Catholics, they really do not believe they are worshiping Mary, although some of their veneration, to be honest, sounds a lot like it to me. So it, it makes me uncomfortable. Okay, one or two last questions. Which view of sanctification would you hold to? You know, the four that you are primary? Uh, I would probably hold to the reform view uh, in, in many respects. I, I think the three phases, positional, progressive, and perfect sanctification, make sense to me. Uh, I think I feel most comfortable with the idea that we receive all that we need for life and godliness at the cross and uh, we don't search for another experience but uh, search to, to, to uh, work out our salvation in fear and trembling with the gifts that we receive um, I think there are, there's value in some of the other emphases I think the, the reformed view can kind of ignore the affections Although there is a strong Reformed tradition that talks a lot about the, the affections and the overwhelming love of Christ. So the emphasis in Wesleyanism for this overwhelming love of Christ and in contemplative uh, sanctification for this overwhelming love of Christ, uh, I think as part of the Reformed tradition should be, but often isn't as emphasized as much. And I think that needs to be part uh, of what we embrace. I, I also... Um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not opposed, as I've talked to some of you around the table, about to dedication. I, I think probably all of us go through points where, where um, we, we come to certain points where, where, where the light kind of dawns. And, and we realize, this is behavior that I've been doing that I just don't want to do anymore. Or, I, I, want, to make a, I, I want to get serious about... My walk in, in different ways. Now, whether that's a dedication experience that's prompted in a unique way by the Spirit, or whether that's just part of the, the natural growth, I, I, I'm not sure. I tend to think it's, it probably is part of natural growth. But if you call it a dedication, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a, that's a big deal with me. But that's kind of where I'm at. All right. Well, let's uh, give uh, Dr. Lockwood a warm appreciation. We're very appreciative of you. Thank you. We, uh, we uh, are about to go to lunch, so why don't we stand and we'll close uh, together in a word of prayer, and then I'll give you a few instructions, and then uh, we're going to uh, be excused for lunch. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We realize, O oh God, how wonderful it is that you have saved us in such an amazing way in which we would not even fathom. And Father, we pray that you would deepen our understanding, deepen our love for you and for your people, as well as for the lost, that we might share with them the saving knowledge of your Son. 
We pray, God, that you would encourage and bless our hearts and that you would bless the food which we're about to eat for lunch as well as safety on the way home. We thank you, Father, for this entire weekend, for the hearts that have been touched. We pray, God, touch our own hearts in the same way that we might change to be more like you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Mm -hmm.